0: Hi everyone, welcome to Bell Curve with Mary Scott, Rachel, and Liz. And before we dive into today's topic, I wanted to pop in and say that we often record our interviews well in advance of when we release them, and that usually works well. We aren't a current event show, but sometimes major events happen like those going on in America in June, 2020 that are well worth discussing, and we wanted you to know we aren't ignoring those issues, and we'll be talking about them with some very special guests in our next episode. And now, on to this week's episode. Hi, my friends. Welcome to Bell Curve. I'm your host, Rachel Bryars, joined by my co-hosts, Mary Scott Hunter and Liz Beshears, and today we are revisiting the big bad s word that we talked about in season one and that is sales because y'all i don't think we could talk enough about this crucial skill in a few minutes i'm going to introduce a special guest and a sales expert who is joining us but y'all i just want to say first that no matter our career field or volunteer role or personal goals i am willing to bet selling is at least some part of it Be that selling an idea, selling a product, selling yourself as a service provider, or maybe just selling someone on why they should support a cause. It's such a part of life and work, and yet so many of us really do not like it or at the least struggle with it. I kind of cringe to think of some of my own sales meetings. I mean, you really can't help remember the ones that you felt didn't go well, right? Like, I remember leaving one a couple years ago and reflecting and realizing that I had been so nervous, I had sort of ended up clenching my teeth the whole time. And no doubt I must have come across like I was just mad. (laughs) And I'm sure that made just an (laughs) awesome impression and really helped me reach my goals. But I don't think it's surprising that our bodies react like that sometimes. I teach public speaking to college students, and we talk about that well-known statistic that when people are asked to rank their top fears from a list of common things that scare humans... Most people say they are more afraid of giving a speech than they are of spiders, heights, or even dying. We've all heard that statistic. But I wonder if fear of sales and selling should be on that list of top fears to choose from, because really for so many, it can produce something akin to that intense fear of public speaking. The social science literature has a name for it. Researchers call it sales call anxiety, or SCA. In one 2000 article in the Journal of Marketing, Willem Verbeke and Richard Bogosi defined sales call anxiety as, quote, an irrepressible fear of being negatively evaluated and rejected by a customer. And they say SCA consists of four components. I'll just mention two. Two of them are negative self-evaluations and awareness of physiological symptoms like a queasy stomach, shaky voice, blushing, even sort of protective actions like avoiding eye contact and fiddling with our hands. So I think it is fascinating how fear affects our minds and bodies and can get in the way of our goals So that is why I am so thrilled to have my dear friend and a rock star sales rep in the pharmaceutical industry, Lisa Lighty, on the show today to help us get better at this. Lisa, welcome to Bell Curve.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. What a nice intro.
0: (laughs) Lisa has been working in pharmaceutical sales for more than 20 years, and her resume is packed with awards and honors related to being really a top sales performer in her field. She most recently won the Silver Award. She's won awards such as the Top Seed Award, Partnership Award. She was a two-time winner of the Vice President's Award when she was with Merck. And in the past 10 years or so, she's really specialized in working with pulmonologists, immunologists, pediatric pulmonologists, among others. And besides all of this, on a personal note, I have known Lisa for something like eight years. She's a wonderful wife and mother. Her son is my son's best friend. She is one of the best leaders I know. And I really could just go on and on about her and what she means to me. So welcome again, Lisa. And I just wanna dive into this topic of sales. Would you walk us through your top five sales tips? How can we get better at this thing that tends to scare so many of us?
1: Well, I'm so thrilled to be with you guys. You know, I'm an avid listener and I love your podcast and I'm honored that you guys would take any of the words I have to share to heart. Um, also, I'm going to keep all of your sweet words in, in my back pocket because we're going to talk about some of that self-talk and and how you talk to yourself in a sales environment and how that benefits. Really, in my mind, there are five key components to being an effective salesperson and we'll walk through each five and they all build on one another, but they all replace um the overall theme of selling with more of a a social awareness and a situational awareness that can benefit you in more than just a sales component. I have figured out through my career in sales and through interacting with other people that I really respect that are salespeople That if you look at the way we interact with other people, almost every engagement is a selling opportunity. Hmm. Whether you are soliciting new volunteers for a project you're working on, or if you're going in for an interview for a job, or if you're trying to state your case during some kind of dialogue with a spouse. At the end of the day, (laughs) I mean, seriously, and I'm totally going to confess to I sometimes have to pull in my sales skills um, when I argue my point with my husband. But I really think that we all sell every day and most of our engagements with other people are really selling opportunities. We just don't realize that. And having an awareness of that and using these tips actually benefit us far beyond truly sales Experiences. So the first one I would talk about benefits us, and no matter what situation you're in, and that's be a subject matter expert. So what do I mean by subject matter expert? If you look at some of the industries in the Huntsville area, people make big money being subject matter experts in engineering and hypersonics and all of these big theoretical thought processes. But when you talk about selling and you're interacting with another person, being a subject matter expert means you don't walk into that engagement until you know all of the information you need to know about your product or your service. So for me, that means that I know my products backward and forward. I know my competition. I know exactly what data has been done on my products and even products that came before my current therapeutic opportunities. So knowing the history of a disease state area is vital to me being credible in front of my customer. But that's not that much different from if we're talking about an opportunity to sell a volunteer experience. If you're trying to recruit new volunteers to your parent-teacher organization, you need to know exactly what the time commitment looks like, exactly what skills are needed to succeed before you approach someone to present these opportunities. You need to know exactly what you're presenting, both the good and the bad and the history that goes behind that.
2: No, Lisa, that really resonates. I I took a position within my company not too long ago and I'm I'm a lawyer and I've I've done that for 8 years in my company but I'm doing more on the business side now with a commercial business unit and I love our product I'm in love with our product and I've tried to learn everything about our product and some of the parts of that learning have been difficult for me because it's it's a software product it's it's very very technical understanding the maturity of the product, how do we hit those maturity milestones, how do we, uh, I mean, how, how, how are, you know, what is this unit or that unit, how does that get plugged in and how does that get interpreted in the software? And I mean, it's been, it, it's been a hard thing, but I think, and, I, and it, now we aren't at the point of sale yet, but I do have the sense, and I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that, and that's good advice because I'm going to keep on trying to learn everything I can now that you said that, it does make sense to me. That if I'm gonna sell it, I better understand it about as good as anybody. Right,
3: right. And similarly, and- I, I work with an organization where I frequently have to pitch my ideas for outreach content to various different teams within the organization and that really is is a sales pitch too of of I have to anticipate those questions that might be coming I have to anticipate any concerns or questions or legal ramifications that they might have Mm -hmm. and um, and really come to the table knowing exactly not just the product I'm selling but knowing what they're going to come back to me with as well too.
1: Right. Well, Ian Altman in his book, Same Side Selling, states that effective sales is not about persuasion. In that book, he makes the case that a subject matter expert actually allows the customer to come to their own conclusion. At that point, you've taken the customer out of being in a what could be contentious environment, and you've put them in a place where they are garnering so much information from you that they're simply making the best decision for their needs based on the information you were able to provide.
2: How does this relate to liking or loving your product? So let's say you're charged to sell a product that either ethically you don't feel like you could sell it because, let's say you're opposed to some aspect of it. You know, maybe it's a uh, some I don't know cigarettes or I don't know something mm-hmm. that you don't that you don't agree with. You think it's hurting people. You think it's an ethical an ethical product. Where where does that where, where does where does that issue fall in in knowing your product and then Conversely, what if you, does it help to genuinely love your product?
1: So twofold answer, absolutely. The first, we'll do the first section. How do you sell something you may not love? There is a point when if you're a good salesperson and you really truly value this profession, if you really have an ethical or moral component that you can't sell a product, you're going to have to walk away. That's just, mm. I, I can't with integrity sell cigarettes. I I just could not, that could not be something I could sell. However, if it's a product that you don't feel as you love, if you go through the process to become the subject matter expert, I am willing to bet that unless it's something you have a moral dilemma about, you're willing to find a niche where you can make a place where you love a certain thing about that product. Um, Years and years ago, I sold a statin that was, when you looked at the raw numbers at reducing LDL was one of the least effective, but it had this amazing data at preventing events. I fell in love with that brand because there was something specific that product could do. And it also had one of the most favorable safety profiles of a product I sold. And so I loved that product and did really well with it because I saw a niche need having the favorable safety profile, being able to use it with other medications was something that was relevant in the marketplace. And so that's how I found a love for that product and was able to promote it. Now, the second question you asked is, do you really have to love your product? You don't have to, but you're going to do a whole lot better if you do. Mm. Because when you truly value the product, when you've become truly invested, and you love what you're selling, it changes the way you present that to others. It goes from being a sales discussion to a dialogue and a collaboration. Um, I'll use the example of my Instant Pot. I love my Instant Pot and I was on my mother that she needed an (laughs) Instant Pot. And she was like, Lisa, the last thing I need is another appliance on my counters or taking up space. I do not need an instant pot. And I kept on telling her mom, it just would make your life so much better. And the way that we ended up finally getting to a place where she understood, as I said, well, I just think that, you know, if you could make a meatloaf in less than an hour that stayed juicy and you could cook 12 baked potatoes in less than an hour without taking up your oven space, that would be something you were interested in that just completely blew her away. And so uh, obviously she now has an instant pot.
3: Okay, you just well, made what? the sale for me too. <laughs> that's one of the that's one of those appliances I've been putting off getting because it's like, oh, well, I mean it's it's a fad and and I don't have room in my house for another appliance, but oh, maybe I do. Every commercial kitchen in America has had
1: steam as an option for preparing moist delicious food forever. The instant pot is our easy way to do that. You need one.
0: I want to bring up, Lisa, that it seems like there are some things at stake here if you're going to be a subject matter expert. Like you said, you realized about your product. There were some, there were some neg- negative points there. If you know about your product or whatever it is you're selling, you're going to come across those negative things. How do you handle that? How do you communicate honesty, authenticity? What's at stake if you aren't honest? Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Absolutely. So, you bring up a couple of key components to being an effective salesperson. First of all, honesty is required. It's not just a benefit. You, If you ever lose trust, the engagement with the customer is gone. You cannot ever be dishonest because once you have, there is no trust and there's no more collaboration. So, you have to be direct and you have to be honest in my industry. I'm legally bound to be completely honest and tell the good and the bad side of every story. Um, so I, that's something that's just part of what we do, but if you're really interested in being effective, Knowing that communicating the negatives oftentimes builds more rapport with the customer. They know that you've been completely forthright, completely honest, and they know that they can take what you've said as a positive attribute just as seriously because you're not trying to sugarcoat, if that makes sense. You know, it's funny if if you think about some of the, the thought processes of negative experiences with a salesperson you think about people think of the old used car salesperson if you come up to a used car lot and the guy's telling you this is great this is the car you need and you try to start it and it doesn't crank and you realize there's some obvious issues you're completely lost with that salesperson but if the salesperson says listen what are you looking for is are you looking for the way it looks or is reliability really key because if you want reliability I've got a problem with a starter on this one over here don't even look at it well suddenly you're like this guy knows his stuff mm-hmm. he cares about me I'm going to listen to what he has to say.
0: I love that. I I think that's a key to building credibility. Bring us to your next point, Lisa. What's your number two tip?
1: Well, you actually segued me beautifully because the second tip that I think is just vital is being genuinely interested in your client's needs. If you are going to be an effective salesperson, you cannot walk in with your agenda for your benefit. Really, most of my colleagues that I respect the most have become really fantastic in their career by understanding clients' needs or customers' needs or patient needs and matching their product to that. If you genuinely want to help, which I think most sales professionals that I interact with truly want to help their customer base, then taking the time to truly understand their needs actually makes you better. Um One of my favorite things that I've read recently was from the Harvard Business Review. They said high pressure selling is equated to persuading the prospect to buy something they can't afford or not suited to their needs or that he doesn't want. When someone's in that kind of situation, no one walks away happy. Mm -hmm. The customer doesn't feel valued. They don't feel respected. The sales rep doesn't make the sale because the customer didn't feel valued. And so no one walks away from that happy. If you take the time to understand what someone is really needing for their patients or for their situation, you're able to make them feel valued. And when someone feels valued, they're much more apt to participate in engagements further with you. So another example would be if you talk about people that sell real estate. Real estate sales to me seems like something that would be so fun because I love to go look at new houses. But when you look at some of the most um, strategic sales professionals in real estate, they know their information. They've become that subject matter expert. But before they ever take a client to a house, they spend the time asking questions. What is it that you need in a home? What is right for your family? Because, I mean, Rachel, you have five children. If someone came and showed you a fabulous modern design with one bedroom, it would be a waste of your time. Mm. So finding out what a customer really needs for their benefit, what the customer needs to be most successful, allows you to tailor your approach and all of that great information you have from being a subject matter expert to fit what they really need. Now we're collaborating. Now we're a consultant and not just a salesperson.
0: What are some of the tools you bring in to, I mean, I feel like if you know all this stuff, you know you can help someone. It takes a little bit of self-control to harness listening or you know what do you do specifically as far as some of those communication skills to make sure they feel valued
1: i think the most important thing you can do is ask great questions and ask great questions and then we're going to talk about active listening um, in my next point but really listening to responses and watching body language when you receive those responses you can tell when someone is being forthright and open with you paying attention to that, to that, if they're being open and and laying it out on the table or if they're holding something back, when you feel like someone's holding something back, you haven't done a good job of asking the right questions yet. Hmm. So you need to dig deeper. Um, Rachel, I'm going to pick on your family again, just because I know them so well. If you pulled up in your SUV with all five of your children to a car lot today and the guy standing there wanting to sell you a car looks up and he sees you, the first thing he's going to do is start showing you large SUVs and minivans. But he doesn't realize that your oldest is on the cusp of being a driver. And what you're really interested in that day is a car for her. Her Mm. first car that's going to be safe, not too terribly expensive, good gas mileage because she's going to get a part-time job and pay for her own gas. If he walks up to you and immediately says, hey, folks, so are you interested in this new minivan that seats 15 – you're totally going to tune him out.
0: Here's what I'm going to say Been there with the minivan, done that, ain't never going back, <laughs> baby.
3: Never, I paid my dues. Never. SUV or bus. Right. <laughs>
1: so that's the assumptions people make. Just yeah. they walk into an interaction and they assume they know without asking any questions the first thing you need to do is sit your ass- assumptions to the side. Now, obviously, you're going to take in what information is in front of you just by surveying what you're able to see and pick up on, but you sit those assumptions aside and confirm your assumptions. So, are you, are you looking for a vehicle for this family? Well, Rachel will respond, no, I'm actually looking for a first car for my daughter. Oh, fantastic. Are we looking for something large, real Buffet of safety around her or are we looking for something? And Rachel says, well, we're actually looking for something good on gas mileage because she's gonna be paying her own way. Fantastic, are we looking brand new or used? What's our price range? Those continuing questions gets to the point where you guys have nailed down exactly what needs to be presented. The gentleman could know every car on the lot, but if he hasn't gotten to what exactly you need that he needs to put in front of you, he's wasted your time.
0: Lisa, on the body language question, when do you know it's time to pull back because somebody has just sh- they have just shut you off? Like what or and when do right. you gently keep pressing even when body language says this conversation's over?
1: So there's a lot of cues. Uh, and when you're talking to someone and you're actually selling a product direct, when a per- person starts stepping away, that is a sure sign you've gone too far. Hmm. This engagement is over. And that but I just kind of a, jumping ahead, I still think you can close on something even when something is, you know what, I know you're pressed for time today. Can we revisit this in two weeks? Can I come back and see you again in two weeks and we continue this discussion? Hmm. You can close on more time. A no doesn't always mean a no. A no may mean a not right now. So, But when you see someone stepping away from engagement, that's a sure sign that you need to pull back. When you see someone start to fold their arms or you get that clench in the jaw, you may have hit a point of contention. And so now it's time to either soften the approach or take a new direction or close for more time in a different environment. When you see someone that starts to look down and will no longer make eye contact with you. You may have made them uncomfortable or you may have gotten to a place where they have decided to shut down on you because they know you're not interested in what they really think or what mm. they really need. So picking up on those those nonverbal cues of someone moving away from the situation, either with their body or their facial structure is a sure sign that it's over and you need to move on.
2: So Lisa, my I, I, when I'm irritated, I show somebody the bottom of my chin. <laughs> I, st- I stick my chin up and I, I didn't even know I did it until my husband one day said, okay, you're done with this conversation. Cause I'm, you're talking to me. You're, you're, you're showing me the bottom of your chin. Stick my chin out.
0: Ooh, good uh, to that know. is
2: fantastic. I would call that the firmness of the jaw.
1: That would, that would, that would qualify there. I, so think concept your- I really
3: love in storytelling and communications is the, the hero's journey. And I hear a lot of what you're talking, of, of what you're talking about in that and placing the, person you're selling to at the center of that journey. You're not, you're not the hero. You, the salesperson are not the hero. Mm -hmm. Me, the storyteller, I'm not the hero. The person I'm selling to, the person I want the story to the story to be about, is the hero. I'm Yoda. I'm Obi Wan. I'm I'm alongside. I'm the guide. You're the guide, and you're not the center of the story, but you're an important part of it. And I think that's something that a lot of storytellers and a lot of salespeople leave out. They're like, I'm I'm the real estate agent who's coming in to save you and and, and buy you a house, but you're not. You're there helping them find a home. That's going to work for them, not what you want to sell them, but what's going to work for them.
1: Exactly. And, you know, I think a lot of times people don't realize when you interview for a job, you're selling yourself. When someone walks into an interview, they're selling themselves. And you need to walk into an interview with confidence and feel like you're secure. But if you walk into an interview like I'm the only person for this job and I'm what you need and you don't explore the needs of the company or the interviewer, in that process, you've just shown them that you're really only interested in yourself and who wants to hire that person? Making what the person needs the center of the conversation. Liz, you're exactly right. That's the key to being able to be effective.
0: Lisa, take us through your next three points.
1: So the next one we've touched on a little bit, it's actively listen and craft appropriate responses. I mean, we all want to be heard, obviously, and listening is more than just the passive act of hearing. Um, it's, it's actually the, the processing of the auditory stimuli. If you're sitting there during a discussion forming your retort instead of hearing what the customer said, you're not listening. And you're not collaborating and then you're not effective. So the third point is actually listen to what the customer has to say and make a conscious effort when you're listening to make eye contact, to look the person in the eye, don't look around, um, hear what they have to say, tolerate some of those closed silences. Rachel, you're probably the best person I know at this, at letting a silence sit for a second.
0: Oh, thank you.
1: Oh, you so gar, And I'm and I'm not that something as a salesperson, I have to fight that uncomfortable silence. I will literally count to eight in my head quietly.
2: <laughs> it can you no,
1: not get to 10? <laughs> no, there's no way I could get to 10. There's no way. So I settled on eight. Eight was as good as I could do. (laughs) As good as I could do. But if you stop and listen, then you truly understand more about what the customer is saying and where their needs fit into what you can offer. Then you can tailor your approach. And you're actually using those soft skills that aren't really soft skills. They're hard skills. Now we're collaborative. And now we're in a place where we have trust. And when we have trust, we can move the needle forward. The fourth thing that I had listed was to surround yourself with people who make you better. Mm. So athletes talk about this all the time. You want to be the best. You need to compete against the best. The old maxim of who you spend your time with is who you will become. That is so appropriate. I think I have two real vocations in life. I'm a professional sales representative, and I am a mother. Those are my vocations, and my very dearest friends in the world – are people that I've connected through with through those two vocations. Hmm. So I, I think it's because I've connected with people that I respect in those two areas and I've seen people who are willing to dig in and learn more about those areas. And they make me better in those two areas. So I'm very committed to surrounding myself with the best professional salespeople. Following the best professionals on LinkedIn and reading the articles that they forward on. When I seek additional training, I look for the ones that I respect that have really been successful. Um, there's a gentleman named Keith Harrell who wrote Attitude is Everything, and he talked about guarding your gate guard your mind gate, guard your heart gate, guard your mouth gate. What you put in here in your head is going to come out here at your mouth. So guard who you surround yourself with because ultimately that's who you're going to become. But the fifth point that I think is just so critical, we can never take no personally. We can never think that when someone has said no, they're saying no to us as a person. This is crucial. They're saying no to the product or they're saying no to the service, or they're saying no to right now. A lot of time, like I said previously, it's it's not a no, it's a not right now. Even in an interview, they're not saying no to you as a person. They're saying no to the skills you're bringing to the table at this time. So you've got to take a, a seat, step back and not let that become a negative um, constant reminder of the no. There's all of this great research on neuroplasticity and the way that the neural pathways become embedded and what they've seen through MRI research. This isn't just um, theoretical. We've seen through MRIs that when someone starts in a negative pathway, when those negative pathways continue, those negative thoughts, they create deep embedded neural pathways between the brain. A neural pathway is just the distance between th- two neurons and a synapse. So if you're thinking negatively, what they have seen is that our brain follows that exact same pathway over and over again and it becomes entrenched. If you can stop and stop the negative pathway and look for a possibility instead of the negative you actually have the power to grow your brain When we stop in the negative thought process and quit using negative self-talk and reverse it with positive self-talk, we're able to create new neural pathways that are actually positive and force our brain to grow and look for additional opportunity. Um, There's a couple of great research points that I would love to, to research here, but we probably don't have time. One, William James wrote in 1890 in the Principles of Psychology that we have the ability to change our brains throughout our life. Every MRI-based research article that's come out in the past 10 years confirms that principle. The more you stop the negative self-talk and focus on the positive, you actually grow your gray matter, particularly in your orbitofrontal cortex. That's crucial. That's growing our brain and increasing our ability to perform. And one of my things was how exactly do we do it? It's really simple. You have to first recognize that you've gotten into these negative thought patterns. Number two, you have to physically stop yourself. Either you can tap yourself or you can stop the thought process in your brain. And then you have to replace those thoughts with thoughts of possibility. So instead of being... Focused on the negative, you, think, you stop and think, how can I change this? How can I alter this? Um, there's a, Amy Wright is a psychologist in California, and she talks about it in the image of being stuck or lost in the woods. And if you try to find your way out and you actually find yourself deeper lost and you keep walking that same path, you've created that n- deep neural pathway, that deep path to nowhere. But if you can stop yourself and and explore other opportunities, other paths out, you actually can find your way out of being lost in the woods. And then you can walk that same pathway and create that trail to something positive rather than continuing to embed us with our deep negative thoughts. Shailene Flanagan is my favorite U.S. runner. She actually won the New York City Marathon. Um, She was the first American woman to win it in 40 years after she was recovering from uh, from an iliac fracture in her hip. And when she won the New York City Marathon after having to be off for a full year, she said that um, a, a setback is really just a stage for a comeback. Every time you get a no, every time you're embedded in negative thoughts, you've just got to stop yourself and say, how can I use this to grow? How can I use this to dig in? And how can I use this to get better?
0: I think such an important part of that is recognizing if you've if you've even done a little bit of a something good or better than the last time because I do think we can have a cascading effect happen where one little interaction doesn't go the way we wanted, which jumps us onto that neural pathway that's been growing and getting deeper (laughs) over the years, which leads us to the, you know, there's a connection there that leads us to another thought. And then before we know it, we're in that fixed mindset of well, I'm just no good at sales, and we just give up. So give us something just the average person out there who maybe is trying to raise money or dip their toe into sales. What would you tell folks who want to change that fixed mindset to a growth mindset?
2: Because it really is let me just say this: so easy to take no personally. Mm -hmm. That That is ubiquitous. And there is nobody on this In this episode today, there is nobody in our listening audience that is within the sound of my voice today that has not taken no personally at some point. Everybody has done it.
1: Absolutely. So Carol Dweck wrote in Mindset, The New Psychology of Success, that that work is an opportunity, that effort, the hard work is the, is the thing. That's what we grow from. That's what we benefit that all of talents and intelligence are not existing in a vacuum. They are all static. They can actually all grow and it's the work that makes us better. So if you've ever felt personally offended by the no, the key to getting past that is to stop yourself and say, how can I use this to get better Hmm. and every time you're embedded in those negative thoughts if you can stop and say but what are the possibilities if you can just stop yourself and look for the possibilities you can offer yourself opportunities to grow
0: You know, we just finished watching the ESPN series about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls of the 1990s. It is so, so good. But I did not realize, I mean, of course, Michael Jordan, greatest athlete of all time, probably, I didn't realize that he used exactly that strategy that you're talking about of finding a way to turn a personal slight that he perceived into motivation to go out and and work even harder. I didn't realize the level of his competitiveness, singular focus, drive work ethic. He had to harness a lot of what you're talking about to not focus on failure, to pivot and focus on, hey, we got to get out there today and win this game right now. They talked about in the series
1: how he was so good at being present in the moment. One of my favorite parts about that entire thing was they talked about um, during Coach Doug Collins' first season, And he came to that first game, and they're at Madison Square Garden, and they're tied, and he's chomping his gum so much it's turned into powder, and he's sweating buckets. (laughs) And Michael Jordan says to him, Coach, take a drink of that water. Clean that stuff off your mouth. I'm not going to let you lose your first game. (laughs) That. That just, to me, that is such a home run that I am going to take responsibility for leading this. I am going to surround you with quality people. We are going to get to the place we need to be together because I'm going to own this, work it, and be better.
0: Lisa, I just love everything you've shared today. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. Thank you also, I want to say, for being one of our faithful Patreon supporters. Y'all, it means so much to us, those of you who listen and like this content enough to support us on a monthly basis. Lisa does that, and it just means the world to us. Um, I know we've talked a lot about Patreon here on Bell Curve, and maybe you've thought about supporting the show and never gotten around to it. I'd like to practice my selling here and uh, boldly ask you all to please consider going to patreon.com slash bellcurvepod, and choosing a support level. We are all believers in the patron model of supporting content producers, really in this age of saturation and just thousands of media choices. It's the way that shows like ours exist and supporters like Lisa make it possible. So please consider that.
2: Lisa, I just wanna thank you. You're truly an expert in your career field and you're very accessible as well. And I think you had a lot of very smart, accessible things to say to our Kirby's out there and I think they're gonna benefit. So thanks very much. Thank you. much it was a pleasure to be here
0: huge hugs
1: to everybody and we will see you next time